Hi, this is Ben Kaspit from Tel Aviv and you're listening to On Israel. The developments I'm about to describe seem completely logical. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu wanted to take advantage of his strategic alliance with the friendliest U.S. president Israel have ever had in order to impose Israel's sovereignty on the West Bank settlement enterprise. But his plans didn't pan out. Instead, he agreed to shelve the annexation dream in favor of yet another dream, official ties between Israel and the moderate Sunni Muslim states. That has been the only tangible result so far of President Trump's deal of the century for Israeli-Palestinian peace. But instead of making peace with the Palestinians, Israel is making peace with the United Arab Emirates. With Trump lagging in the polls and Netanyahu embattled by his legal troubles and public protests, the two finally received a bit of a good news with the historic August 13th announcement of an agreement between Israel and the UAE hammered out in a three-way telephone conversation between Trump, Netanyahu, and Emirati Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed. Our podcast guest today has been involved in such dealings for decades. He was head of the IDF's planning directorate and was considered one of the most brilliant minds among the top military brass. He also served as national security advisor to the late Prime Minister Ariel Sharon. Reserve Major General Gira Island will be here right after a short commercial break. If you're listening to this podcast, you obviously care about the Middle East. And if you do, you should probably be reading El Monitor. El Monitor is a global newsroom headquartered in Washington, D.C., with a network of over 160 contributors around the world. El Monitor offers first-class reporting and analysis from a range of perspectives and an approach that represents the highest journalistic standards, as well as an award-winning commitment to press freedom and independence. If you haven't done so already, visit us at elmonitor.com, check out our articles, and sign up for our free newsletters. There's a lot to choose from, including the Week in Review, an essay that offers unusual insights and forecasts into the region based upon El Monitor's outstanding reporting. And if you haven't done so, please subscribe to our El Monitor podcast on your favorite podcast platform, On Israel with Ben Caspit and On the Middle East with me, Andrew Parasoliti. We are pleased to host Gioa Island, the former head of the IDF's planning directorate and ex-national security advisor. Shalom, General Island. Thank you for joining us at Al Monitors on Israel podcast. Hi, my pleasure. With your permission, let's begin with the deal between Israel and UAE. Trump and Netanyahu are both hailing this as an historic breakthrough, a geostrategic shift that will shake up the Middle East, change the paradigm of land for peace, and bury the long prevailing assumption that any agreement with the Arab world must go through Ramallah. But many observers and analysts are dampening this enthusiasm by pointing out that Israel has been conducting ties with the Gulf states for decades. It even has an office in Abu Dhabi, and this latest development simply brings the secret affair 
uh, into the open. They also argue that rather than disproving the land for peace formula, the deal emphasizes Israel's commitment to land for peace because in order to achieve normalization with an important Arab state, it had to give up land annexation. I would be very happy to hear your take on this. Okay, I think that the both claims uh, have some uh, rationale and uh, let's try to be more specific. In principle, and maybe in a more formal way, it is really a very important, even an historic event. Because 18 years ago, in 2002, the Arab League um, accepted the, what at that time they called the Saudi Initiative, that said that no Arab state would resume a formal relationship with Israel unless and until Israel withdraw not only from the West Bank and sign agreement with the Palestinians, but also withdraw from the Golan Heights and have a comprehensive final agreement with the Syrians. And this was the formal policy for all the Arab states, and no Arab state was ready to officially to breach this uh, concept. And what we can see right now is that what uh, the um, UAE is doing is actually to... Uh, uh, to abandon or to uh, ignore this uh, commitment and to have a formal relationship that uh, is not dependent on any uh, progress in regard to the Israel-Palestinian talks. And uh, in this regard, it is something new because it is not only this state, it might also bring other states that will follow uh, the Emirates so we can see that, uh, that the Arab world begins to understand that it is better not to be an hostage to the Palestinians' uh, uh, rationale and to their uh, uh, only interest, but to do what is probably good for everyone, in these cases, to have some relations with Israel. So in this respect, it is something historic and important. In the more practical sense, uh, I agree. The, uh, there is quite an open relations between Israel and the Gulf states, not only the, Arab, the United Arab Emirates, but with others. Uh, and if we speak about the security relationship, those relationships began at least 10 years ago, and they are very prosperous right now. But uh, I believe that uh, the official agreement, if it comes to be an official agreement, uh, might lead to some other more, let's say, bold movements that might serve the interests of both sides. Let me try to be specific. Number one uh, is, of course, the direct flights from Israel to Dubai. This is something uh, unprecedented. By the way, in order to achieve it, the Saudis will have to let Israeli flights to fly over the skies, something that so far the Saudis were very reluctant. For example, a few years ago, President Obama asked the king of Saudi Arabia let Israel do it as a gesture, and he refused. So now we can assume that Saudi Arabia will let it happen, and it might change many things in regard to the ability of Israel to fly, not only to Abu Dhabi, but also to the east. Number two is from the, uh, from the um, Abu Dhabi point of view. Uh, it is not secret that they are looking to purchase from Israel very advanced weapon system. So far, the Israeli answer was no. And I believe that there is some kind of uh, implicit understanding that as we have some agreement like this, Israel will uh, sell this country some sophisticated weapons. 
it could be uh, the aero system, it could be the iron dome, or maybe some other advanced system. Uh, from the Israeli point of view, it is, if you want, another layer of uh, defensive system vis-a-vis -vis the Iranians. So from the strategic point of view, uh, of course, there is no reason why not to do it. And uh, even in the field of energy, we might see something that so far we could not see. For instance, maybe uh, Israel will begin to buy oil from Saudi Arabia, uh, or first from Abu Dhabi, uh, that will reach Eilat and will use the uh, pipeline between Eilat and Ashkelon. And uh, so Israel will not depend only on oil that comes to Ashdod and Haifa. This is important in order to create more redundancy in the supply of oil to Israel. And there could be some other important strategic deals that we will have to see. So this is an important matter, no doubt, and we have to give, I would say, all the credit to the Prime Minister that led this concept for a long time and reached quite a successful end. This is exactly what I wanted to ask you as my next question, to try and get into uh, Netanyahu's mind what happened between his right and left ears. So I, I, I'm asking you, do you think that from the very beginning it was a hoax and Netanyahu intentionally introduced the annexation idea as a bargaining chip so he could uh, trade it for return, in return for agreements with the Arab world? Or was it the other way around and he was forced to give up on the annexation and receive the normalization deal as a consolation prize? I think that the second option is the right one. I truly believe that Netanyahu in January this year really believed that he would be able to reach uh, this uh, annexation uh, um, um, project. Uh, actually, when he reached the, when he accepted the Trump initiative, the deal of the century, as, as Trump called it, uh, Netanyahu thought that it might be a win-win situation. If, surprisingly, the Palestinians will accept it, as a basis for further negotiation, it means that Israel uh, might have a much better deal than what previous prime minister managed to achieve. And if uh, the Palestinians will say no, then Israel would be able to say, well, it is not our initiative, it is the American initiative, and we humbly accept the American initiative, and since the Palestinians don't cooperate, we will at least exercise our part, which means to uh, actually to exercise the Israeli uh, sovereignty over 30% of the West Bank. This was a real intent of uh, Netanyahu. He believed that this would be his biggest achievement. Now, because of what is happening with the American administration, because of the corona, because of so many other problems in Israel, including surprising opposition from the Israeli right to this uh, Trump uh, uh, initiative, uh, he actually decided to, at least to postpone it for unknown time, and now uh, he managed to trade with something that actually could not deliver anyway, but he managed to trade it with, the, uh, with Abu Dhabi, and uh, so both sides can show achievements to whoever they want. I think that Abu Dhabi was uh, in a way surprised to find out uh, how uh, negative was the Palestinian response to that, because they wanted to get a credit for removing from the table this uh, terrible annexation threat, and what happens is the Palestinians are mad at them uh, rather than to applaud. So this is something that I'm not sure that they are really calculated the next uh, steps uh, 
as they, uh, as they should have. I'm not sure who was it. I think it was our uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, Aubrey Eben, that said that uh, Palestinians will uh, never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity, and we will get to them shortly. I, I wanted to ask you before, to what extent could this agreement impact the strategic balance in the region? Is it your assessment that Bahrain and Saudi Arabia's MBS could soon join MBZ? And how will it uh, all affect the Israeli-Sunni American campaign against Iran? Because behind, below the radar, during the weekend, I think the United States and Israel lost an important vote in the uh, UN Security Council about the end of the conventional weapons embargo against Iran. Since today, uh, the Iranian regime can start uh, again buying conventional weapons. This is not good news to the region. I agree with you. I mean, uh, the coalition uh, between Israel, the moderate Arab states, and the United States vis-a-vis -vis Iran uh, existed for many years. And uh, this uh, more official uh, relations with uh, Abu Dhabi does not create any new incentive and new interest and new position, even new position vis-a-vis -vis, uh, uh, Iran. So in this regard, we cannot say that this new agreement uh, changes dramatically the balance of power in the Middle East. It is far from being so. And uh, so the traditional enemies or the traditional sides continue to be each of them in their uh, previous position. And uh, as you rightly say, Iran managed to achieve uh, some victory in the UN and they will probably resume the uh, purchase of very advanced weapons, possibly from, the, from Russia. Unfortunately, they have a lot of other problems, including economic problems, so I'm not sure that they will be able to purchase a lot of sophisticated weapons in the near future. But the fact that they are allowed to do it is certainly not a good news for Israel. And nothing uh, at this point, Israel or these Arab uh, states can do against it. Uh, but at the very same time, we can say that um, uh, if more and more countries uh, will follow Abu Dhabi, uh, it does create, I would say, a, a shift or possible shift in the position of the international community vis-a-vis -vis the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Because until now, it is not only that the Arab states say whatever they say, this was the, let's say, the traditional slogan of all the European states and all other states in the world, India, China, Japan, whoever, who said, first you have to solve the problems with the Palestinians, otherwise the, there will be a very bad and negative projection on the Middle East if you don't solve the problem with the Palestinians. And because of this new trend in the Gulf, uh, then this claim against Israel is going to, let's say, to decrease. But at the same time, we have to, to remember that in the end of the day, we live here where the Palestinians live, whether it is Gaza or the West Bank. Whether we want to solve the situation this way or that way, they're not going to disappear. So we are left with the same problem, even if we manage to achieve some other, uh, let's say, goals in different parts of the Middle East. So we just arrived to my final question about this issue, about the Palestinians. Can you put some order, because one can think that the furious reaction from, uh, that we hear from Ramallah will strengthen the, the old guards, the refusal front, the Abu Mazens, the Jibril al-Rajubs, 
But there is another possibility that uh, maybe the Palestinians, because of this deal and may, maybe uh, other, the others that will follow, will finally understand that time is not working in favor or, or uh, with them, but against them. And maybe uh, we will see in the future the rise of a new kind of leadership. There are talks about Mohammed Dahlan that was a part of this deal and now he's a traitor in Ramallah. And maybe a, a new generation, generation of Palestinian leaders that will understand you have to be to come to, to the solve of solving this issue with Israel in a total different way. Uh, I tend to, to agree with this possible assessment. We have to remember that for the past, I don't know, 15 years, Abu Mazen uh, uh, succeeded to be perceived as the leader of the Palestinians because he said, I'm a moderate person. I'm the only one who can achieve a peace agreement with the Palestinians. This is the reason why you have to keep me as a president because this is my strength and this is what I can do. Now, due to the situation, due to the disappointment of the Palestinian street and due to the possible other concept, Abu Mazen might lose the only real point that he has, that he can achieve a political solution. And at the same time, uh, one of his biggest opponents, Muhammad Dahlan, previous leader in Gaza, now he lives in Abu Dhabi, is very close to the uh, leadership in Abu Dhabi. He might be uh, presented by, uh, by, by the leaders of the Gulf countries as the only person who can deliver, who can use or can utilize, utilize or can recruit the Arab countries that will back him with uh, some kind of maybe some new concept of a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and maybe more and more forces in the, uh, in the Fatah uh, party, in the Palestinian movement, might uh, realize that maybe time has come to choose something else. So there might be some instability in Ramallah, not necessarily is going to be on our side because instability in Ramallah might create also a lot of security problems, but this is no doubt a real uh, a possible point of a turn in the Palestinian behavior. Let's uh, move to Beirut. It's hard to believe that this uh, terrible explosion uh, took place less than two weeks ago, and it looks so remote now. Uh, Beirut is, uh, is uh, licking its wounds from this catastrophe uh, that happened earlier this month, and it appears that nothing good is threatening the, this miserable land. What could this event uh, affect, how it can affect the complex situation between Israel and Lebanon, and the neighboring states, the strategic situation in such a delicate front, Israel, Hezbollah, Iran, Syria, etc. Uh, even before this explosion, we have to understand the situation in, uh, let's say, precise way. And there are two important things that we have to understand. Number one, uh, what happened in Lebanon the past 15 years is that the country was actually controlled by a coalition of two groups, a group of the elite of the Sunnis and the Christians, most of the real rich families, this is on one hand, and on the other hand, Hezbollah. And these two parties, although they are opponent to each other, managed to create quite a stable coalition that serves mostly the interest of these two groups on the expense, of course, of the state itself, on the expense of the people of Lebanon, 
and uh, that's by, himself, by itself deteriorate the situation, the economic situation of the country to a real miserable situation. And then the corona came about six months ago and added to the already existing situation in uh, Lebanon, and now the explosion with all the uh, consequences. So Lebanon is in a real deep, uh, severe situation, and in order to be able uh, not only to recover, but even to get the minimum that they need for food and the, and the gasoline and other essential project, uh, product, they urgently need economic assistance from the West, whether it is France or other uh, financial institutions. And this is exactly the point where uh, a real change might occur in Lebanon. And this uh, real change might occur if those who can offer such an economic assistance will demand not only to make some kind of a political changes in the system and not only uh, financial reforms, but will say we cannot continue and support you Lebanon unless you make a change in the position of Hezbollah. Because so far, according to that coalition that I mentioned, Hezbollah is the only effective military force in Lebanon, and of course they are allowed to deploy the forces and to put their uh, huge arsenal even in a very populated areas. And this by itself might be uh, not acceptable. So this is a point where the state of Lebanon might be demanded to take actions. Fortunately, Hezbollah is a political party that are very sensitive to legitimate uh, or to the uh, legitimacy or domestic legitimacy. And for the first time after maybe 30 years, they will be in a real dilemma. So far, Hezbollah managed to hold the stick in two ends. On one hand, to be representative of Iran and its ambitions. And on the other hand, to present itself as a legitimate patriotic Lebanese movement. Now they have to choose because it is beginning to be clear to more and more people in Lebanon that it cannot work together. So Israel cannot do very much in order to influence it. We have to be very careful not to, to make, let's say, uh, uh, public announcements, but uh, some pressure that might come from inside and from outside might create a lot of pressure on Hezbollah and it might lead, I would say, to a much better strategic situation in the region. So my last and final question about this issue is uh, try to get, try to be for a second uh, Hassan Nasrallah's uh, national security advisor, uh, thinking about the, the siege that he is surrounded with uh, being pushed to the wall, not only Nasrallah himself, but also the the Iranian regime, in, I think the lower point that I remember these two regimes combined, which is the best way to get out of it? Uh, by force, maybe as, as, as an act of uh, insane, insanity, initiate a, a hostile uh, or even war with Israel, or the other way around, listen, you have to forget about the Israelis for the time being, you have to focus inside Lebanon, try to get the, Leban the, the, the Lebanese people uh, trust again. What would you tell him? Uh, I think that uh, in the foreseeable future, neither Iran nor Hezbollah will initiate any war against Israel. Uh, Iran, besides its regular problems, wants to reach a position where they have a nuclear weapons or they are very close to, 
and they're not going to risk it by some kind of a local war between Israel and Hezbollah. And Hezbollah, as I said, understand very well that if a war begins between Israel and Hezbollah, it will certainly bring to a real devastation of the state of Lebanon. And short time after that, Hezbollah will be asked why exactly you brought on our heads another disaster which does not serve any of the real Lebanese interests. So I don't think that they will, even if they are desperate, they will not initiate a war against Israel. But there is another point that we have to be sensitive. Nasrallah is always looking for excuses or possible excuses to open a war against Israel. And it should be not an Iranian issue, but it should be a purely Lebanese issue. And one of his points is uh, when he said, and he began to speak about that three years ago, that Israel is stealing the gas that belongs to Lebanon by drilling in the Mediterranean Sea and some of the areas where Israel is actually producing gas actually belong to Lebanon. Now there is, or there was an American initiative to reach, let's say, agreement between Israel and Lebanon about the border in the maritime uh, sphere. And I think this is one of the things that Americans can push now any government in Lebanon to reach a final agreement with Israel about that. Otherwise, Nasrallah will always be able to say, Israel is stealing our money. This is the only way to recover our economy. He might begin a war by launching some rockets to the Israeli, uh, uh, to one of the uh, uh, activities in the sea. And uh, then he will be able to present himself as a defender of the Lebanese uh, uh, strategic interest. We have to remove this may, uh, matter from the table before it might be used as the real excuse of Hezbollah to open fire. And final question, because we are out of time, but it's very important. Uh, let's talk about the coronavirus crisis in Israel. You have not given high grades to the quality of public management in this crisis. Where do you think Israel went wrong in dealing uh, with the epidemic? And can it still block the spread of the disease without a full lockdown? Uh, very, very briefly, I think that we made huge mistakes from the beginning. And the mistake is not by taking this action or that action, but because we did not define the problem in the right way. In the end of the day, it is not a medical problem. It is a real national crisis. And there is a way to handle the national crisis. And the prime minister, the other ministers, and actually the whole Israeli establishment actually ignore this very, very simple notion of national crisis that had to be handled according to the principles of national crisis. And now, because they are not ready to admit that this was a mistake, they're trying to make very, very minor changes in the system, and these minor changes are not enough. So unfortunately, our situation is not improving. I think this is a terrible political move, and contrary to my very strong compliments vis-a-vis -vis the agreement with the UAE, I think that in this case there is a huge failure of the government, and we are going to pay unnecessary price for long term. I wish we could uh, we would have more time and speak maybe about a fourth election in Israel, etc. But but uh, we are out of time. It was fascinating, General Island. Thank you for this talk. We'll be back soon here for some final remarks right after this short break. So that thank you, Giora, and Shalom.
If you're listening to this podcast, you obviously care about the Middle East. And if you do, you should probably be reading El Monitor. El Monitor is a global newsroom headquartered in Washington, D.C., with a network of over 160 contributors around the world. El Monitor offers first-class reporting and analysis from a range of perspectives and an approach that represents the highest journalistic standards, as well as an award-winning commitment to press freedom and independence. If you haven't done so already, visit us at elmonitor.com, check out our articles, and sign up for our free newsletters. There's a lot to choose from, including the Week in Review, an essay that offers unusual insights and forecasts into the region based upon El Monitor's outstanding reporting. And if you haven't done so, please subscribe to our El Monitor podcast on your favorite podcast platform, on Israel with Ben Caspit and on the Middle East with me, Andrew Parasoliti. Hi, thank you for uh, staying with us. Major General Giora Island believes that we can translate the UAE-Israel deal in both languages, or maybe we can hold the stick of this deal on both ends. On one hand, it is indeed an historic event that breaks the paradigm of the Arab Initiative from 2002. This initiative dictated the whole Arab world a formula of behavior towards Israel. No one could cut any deal with Israel without solving first the Israeli-Palestinian uh, uh, conflict or maybe at least seeing uh, an advance in the negotiation. Now, the UAE move, which is not a part of the Israeli-Palestinian deal, creates a brand new rationale in the area. In the other, uh, in the practical sense, there are open relations between Israel and many of the Gulf states from many, many years now. So this event cannot be compared, for example, to the stunning visit of the late Egyptian president Anwar Sadat in Jerusalem that led to the historic peace accords between Israel and Egypt. Major General Island predicts that the UAE move can lead to a series of similar moves, bold moves, from other Sunni states in the region. In the other front, the Israeli-Lebanese and Iranian front, Major General Island predicts that the devastating explosion in Beirut earlier this month uh, worsened the severe crisis this state is suffering from. And the new situation can start at a domino effect that can cause a change in Hezbollah's stand and influence within Lebanon. In any case, the disaster decreases the chances to an eruption of a violent escalation or even an all-out war between Israel and Hezbollah. And at least these are good news. Thank you for listening to us. We'll be back here next Monday in On Israel in Al Monitor. Take care.